Welcome to Come Follow Me with Bree, episode 61, Heaven. Hello, everyone. I hope you had a wonderful week. I hope you studied a lot from last week. It was so, so good. So if you haven't listened to last week, go listen to it. Actually, go listen to like the last four weeks if you haven't. We've just had some really like heavy doctrinal weeks, and I think they're so fun. I just think it's so cool to notice how much of a complete picture we get of of the gospel and the Lord's plan. And and I think sometimes for those of us who've been in the church most of our life, we take for granted how much more we know and has been revealed to us than your average Christian. And so I'm just so grateful for that. I'm so grateful for the for the doctrine and covenants. I'm so thankful for Joseph Smith. I'm thankful for all the truths revealed. And so with that, let's dive in. We are studying sections 129 of the Doctrine and Covenants to 132. And as usual, (laughs) lots of cool stuff. Um, One thing that I'm not going to really talk about a whole lot um, that we do talk about in section 130 is polygamy. And actually, I learned um, this week that the people involved with polygamy who practice polygamy didn't like that term. They considered it a worldly term. A term that would more describe somebody entering into a plural marriage without the authorization of God. And so they preferred terms like plural marriage or spiritual wife, um, things like that. Anyway, again, this episode is not going to be about that because I don't feel that I grasp the history and everything well enough to really uh, give you a good podcast where I'm like the expert talking to you because I'm certainly not. However, what I did want to tell you is I did study it this week and I read a whole lot of things. And I'm sure as the same is for most of you, it's something that I've struggled with. It's something that when I hear about it, I have a natural aversion to. It um, doesn't feel good to me because that's something that our culture doesn't really doesn't accept. It's not it's not socially acceptable. It's not morally acceptable. It's just something that feels wrong. But what I want to tell you is that this week, as I read a lot about plural marriage, I read a lot about the firsthand accounts within them. I read a lot of the scriptures. I read this section. I studied this section. I asked Heavenly Father about it. I read explanations that have been given and um, further, further insight into plural marriage. And that is what I want to encourage you guys to do because I this week feel like I gained a testimony of the principle of plural marriage and that sometimes, and I, I, I knew this before, but I really feel like this week I gained a greater understanding and a greater testimony that that came from God. And that is something that God authorizes sometimes for good reason. And so I encourage you guys to really study it with an open mind, with faith, with a willingness to learn, with a willingness to really accept that the Lord's ways are higher than yours and that our cultural norms that we're comfortable with doesn't necessarily mean that they are truth. Now, just to be clear, so I'm not misunderstood, the church has always promoted monogamy, having one wife and As a general rule, the population of the church was commanded to obey that command. And when plural marriage was authorized and practiced by those who were asked to, that is the only time that that was appropriate and okay within the bounds that the Lord has set. There is absolutely no part of me that ever wants 
myself, I, I mean, as we can tell from leaders in the church, they really agonized over this. And this was a really hard command. The Lord, even in this section, compares it to the command of um, Abraham to kill his son Isaac. And that even that, which normally would have been a sin, was counted unto him as righteousness. So I, I again, I don't want to get super far into this because I really just don't have super organized thoughts about it. But please make sure that you don't shy away from this subject. Make sure you don't shy away from this subject with your children. Read the scriptures. Ask Heavenly Father. Read different sources on the on the church website. They have so many great articles talking about it. And bring it to the Lord, and He will help solidify your, your testimony in that. Okay, so let's move on to our subject for today. I want to talk about heaven. The first thing I thought when I was preparing this, I thought of the primary song, Where is Heaven? And I want to read you the lyrics because I just think it's so simple and so sweet. And it really just, it's kind of the stream of thought that I think we all have as as we're growing up, as we're adults, as we think about this, this mysterious place that we can't see. So listen to these. I wish I could remember the days before my birth. And if I knew the Father before I came to earth, in quiet moments when I'm all alone, I close my eyes and try to see my heavenly home. Where is heaven? Is it very far? I would like to know if it's beyond the brightest star. Where is heaven? Will you show the way? I would like to learn and grow and go there someday. I wish I could remember the Father's loving face and all of the friends and family that filled that holy place. Was I a child there? Did I walk with God? And was that where I learned about the iron rod? Although I can't remember and cannot clearly see, I listen to the Spirit and so I must believe. But I still wonder and try to find the answer to the question that is on my mind. Where is heaven? What do we know about where God resides? I think a lot of us know that we call it Kolob, <laughs> which actually I didn't even research that. So I don't even, I can't even tell you a whole lot about um, that word even. But for one, we know from several examples, we have the brother of Jared, the first vision, and from modern revelation that Jesus Christ and Heavenly Father have physical bodies like us and therefore can only be physically in one place and one time, although their influence can be felt everywhere. In section 130, verse 1, it says, when the Savior shall appear, we shall see him as he is. We shall see that he is a man like ourselves. And then in verse 22, in the same section, it says, the Father has a body of flesh and bones as tangible as man's, the Son also. But the Holy Ghost has not a body of flesh and bones, but is a personage of spirit. Were it not so, the Holy Ghost could not dwell in us. So this is going to seem like it's it's not relevant for a second, but it is. It's always weird for me to think about famous people. And sometimes I have thoughts like, right now, Ellen DeGeneres is doing something or thinking something, or Donald Trump is somewhere doing something, feeling feelings, and he's like curling up in bed and snuggling his pillow. I don't know. Just, you know, like normal things, like I'm cooking something and I'm thinking, you know, Maybe Brad Pitt's out there and we're cooking at the same time. Anyway, but we're all just individuals. We're doing our own thing. We're all caught up in our own storyline. And that doesn't change no matter who you are. No matter who you are, you have a body. 
um, unless you're Satan or one of the spirits that followed him. But, you know, if you're alive here on the earth, you have a body, you have your own storyline, you have your own life, you have your own feelings, all the things. And so it's just weird sometimes for me to, even when I'm on the freeway, I'll be looking at somebody and just be thinking like, they know nothing about me or my storyline. That's the central um, part of, of my life. And it just seems weird that nobody else knows all the things that are so important to me. And I don't know everything about what's going on in their life. So I have had the same thoughts about Heavenly Father and Jesus Christ. They are physically somewhere doing something, thinking something. Maybe they can think many thoughts at once. I don't know. Feeling something. They are real men with real bodies that can feel and see, touch, think, hear, and experience the physicality of life. Isn't that weird to think about that Heavenly Father is out there doing something that maybe Jesus is sitting somewhere and maybe he's deciding to cross his legs right now. And maybe he did his hair this morning. I don't know. I mean, I don't think that his time probably aligns with where what we're doing, but I'm just saying he has a body. And so you do normal body things with that. Um, and obviously he has a resurrected body. So I don't really know what that entails or how that changes, how you interact physically with the world. But it's just funny to think about the realities of having a physical body and what that then would mean that they are experiencing at any given moment. Okay, I'm getting a little off topic. When we go to heaven, we will have physical bodies and Jesus Christ and Heavenly Father will have physical bodies as well. Joseph Smith taught, and this was recorded by Wilford Woodruff, God who sits yonder in heavens is like a man, like yourselves, that God, if you were to see him today that holds the worlds, you would see him like a man in form like yourselves. Adam was made in his image and talked with him, walked with him. As the father hath power in himself, so hath the son power in himself to do what the father did, even to lay down his body and take it up again. And you have got to learn how to make yourselves God, king, and priest by going from a small capacity to a great capacity to resurrection of the dead to dwelling in everlasting burnings. I want you to know the first principle of this law, how consoling the mourner when they part with a friend to know that even though they lay down this body, it will rise and dwell with everlasting burnings to be an heir of God and joint heir of Jesus Christ. Enjoying the same rise, exaltation, and glory until you arrive at the station of a God. So I like there how Joseph Smith is talking about God and reminding us that God has a body that we were created in God's image, and he is a man with a physical body. And it's almost like he's making him a little bit more relatable because he's reminding us that we have the capacity to gain all of the same power and and dominion and all of that as God. And so it just reminds us that God is different from us right now, but we ultimately have the capacity to become like God. And part of that is that we have a physical body like God. The reason, one of the reasons God can be God is because he has a physical body. All right. In heaven right now, there are also angels. So we have God, the father, his son, Jesus Christ with bodies, and we have angels. In section 129, we were told that those angels and spirits are, in verse 1, angels who are resurrected personages having bodies of flesh and bones. So these angels have either been resurrected from the dead or they have been translated. And then secondly, in verse 2, the spirits of just men made perfect, they who are not resurrected but inherit the same glory. These spirits can be those who have not yet attained a body or those who have not been resurrected yet, but are just men. Both of these beings, both 
the resurrected personages and people who have been translated and the spirits of just men, all of those are interchangeably called angels. We know that those angels are hard at work right now. They have had big jobs throughout the history of the world, delivering important messages of doctrine, inspiration, warning, and also to comfort God's chosen. There are many notable angels um, sent in the scriptures, but let's talk about a few. The angel Gabriel delivering one of the most important messages in the history of the world to Mary, the mother of the Savior, that he was going to be born. And then a host of angels. Me personally, I kind of hope that I maybe was one of those angels that got to go sing to the shepherds. So they appeared to these humble shepherds to announce his birth, not just with words, but with song. Man, I hope I just like ever like probably for 15 years now, I once had a thought where I was just I was hearing that story and I was like, man, I hope I was one of those angels who got to sing to the shepherds. I just think that's amazing. Um, An angel warned Joseph to flee from Herod's wicked edict. And then also the angel came back to let them know when it was safe to return to Israel. And then one of my favorites is an angel came to the Savior in the Garden of Gethsemane. Luke 22, 42 through 44, saying, Father, if thou be willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. And there appeared an angel unto him from heaven, strengthening him. And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat was as it were great drops of blood falling down to the ground. Don't you just love that the Savior asked to be relieved of that, but then when the Father couldn't or wouldn't, he sent an angel to strengthen him. And the job of those angels that can comfort and strengthen is not limited to the Savior. In Mosiah, we read about Alma the Younger going around with his friends trying to destroy the church, when in chapter 27, verse 11, it says, The angel of the Lord appeared unto them, and he descended as it were in a cloud, and he spake as it were with a voice of thunder, which caused the earth to shake upon which they stood. So there we're getting a voice of chastisement and warning. They also have really big jobs pertaining to the preparation for and then the actual event of the second coming. President Wilford Woodruff said in 1894, God has held the angels of destruction for many years, lest they should reap down the wheat with the tares. But I want to tell you now that those angels have left the portals of heaven, and they stand over this people and this nation now, and are hovering over the earth, waiting to pour out judgments. And from this very day shall they be poured out. Calamities and troubles are increasing in the earth, and there is a meaning to these things. So there we have angels of destruction who fulfill a very important role in making sure that all God's promises are fulfilled and that all of this works out how it's supposed to. We need that part of it as well. In Doctrine and Covenants, chapter 29, verse 11, it says, When the Savior comes again, he will come in power and glory with all the hosts of heaven. I wonder what that'll look like. All the hosts of heaven? Oh, it just gives me the chills. So what is heaven like right now? As, we're, as you're listening to me, as I'm speaking, I think heaven is right now hard at work, anxiously engaged in the cause of the Lord's people and gathering Israel. I am positive that there are angels who have been given specific responsibilities regarding you and your family. Doctrine and Covenants 8442, I have given the heavenly hosts and mine angels charge concerning you. 
Doctrine and Covenants 8488. I will be on your right hand and on your left, and my spirit shall be in your hearts and mine angels round about you to bear you up. Those scriptures are to you. There are angels here right now working for your good. One of my favorite things that the scriptures tell us that angels are here to do is in Moroni chapter 7, verse 35 through 37. And now, my beloved brethren, if this be the case, that these things are true, which I have spoken unto you, and God will show unto you with power and great glory at the last day that they are true. And if they are true, has the day of miracles ceased? Or have angels ceased to appear unto the children of men? Or has he withheld the power of the Holy Ghost from them? Or will he, so long as time shall last, or the earth shall stand, or there shall be one man upon the face thereof to be saved? Behold, I say unto you, Nay, for it is by faith that miracles are wrought, and it is by faith that angels appear and minister unto men. I love how the two parts of that work together. It says, Has he withheld the power of the Holy Ghost from them? As long as the power of the Holy Ghost is here on the earth, there will be faith to some degree or another. And then implied in that, it says, Or will he so long as time shall last, or the earth shall stand, or there shall be one man upon the face of the earth thereof to be saved? So why do angels appear? Why is it important to have the power of the Holy Ghost here on the earth? It is because both of those things help Heavenly Father and His Son Jesus Christ accomplish their goal, which is to bring to pass the immortality and eternal life of us. You know what I just thought of? I wonder what if I could all of a sudden experience my life without whatever angels have ministered unto me, whatever angels have supported me. I wonder how different my life would feel right now. Obviously, I can't really know that because all I've experienced is the life that I have. And I do believe that angels have been there to comfort me and support me and warn me and, you know, do all the things that, that my angels have done. But sometimes they think because it is an unseen support, we might not quite realize how much is actually done for our benefit by the ministering angels that are sent to us. Just as angels were sent to the Savior in his darkest hour, angels are sent to us in ours when we rely on the Savior. Do you hear what Moroni is saying there? So long as time shall last, or the earth shall stand, or there be one man upon the face thereof to be saved. Our Lord will send angels, miracles, the power of the Holy Ghost to hold you up and to help you withstand whatever happens in your life. Moroni is asking us if the Lord will withhold these things while there is someone else, while you still need help. He answers that question with a resounding no. He will not leave you alone. He will not leave you to the adversary by yourself. He will send you angels. He will send you the power of the Holy Ghost. He has given us the power of the priesthood. He has given us temples for refuge. He has not left us alone, and that includes those angels. So how do we gain access to that? Moroni tells us that it is by faith that angels appear and minister unto men. Now let's read what the section that we're studying this week tells us about the place these angels reside. Verse 6. The angels do not reside on a planet like this earth, but they reside in the presence of God on a globe-like sea of glass and fire where all things for their glory are manifest, past, present, and future, and are continually before the Lord. 
The place where God resides is a great Urim and Thummim. Okay, I am not going to try to pretend that I totally understand all of that. And I don't think we're really supposed to fully understand it right now. Actually, I don't even know if I, I don't even think it's possible for us to fully understand what was just said there. Um, unless maybe you're the prophet and you've been given revelation and capacity to wrap your brain around that. But let's read what the Bible dictionary tells us about Urim and Thummim, which where it says the place where God resides is a great Urim and Thummim. So with that in mind, the Bible dictionary says it's a Hebrew term that means lights and perfections, an instrument prepared of God to assist man in obtaining revelation from the Lord and in translating languages. Using a Urim and Thummim is a special prerogative of a seer, and it would seem reasonable that such instruments were used from the time of Adam. However, the earliest mention is in connection with the brother of Jared. Abraham used a Urim and Thummim, as did Aaron and the priests of Israel, and also the prophets among the Nephites. There is more than one Urim and Thummim. But we are informed that Joseph Smith had the one used by the brother of Jared. A partial description is given in Joseph Smith History 135. Joseph Smith used it in translating the Book of Mormon and in, and in obtaining other revelations. This earth in its celestial condition will be a Urim and Thummim, and many within that kingdom will have additional Urim and Thummim. Okay, I know that's a lot, and also Urim and Thummim sounds like a weird word to us, <laughs> but we're going to touch on that last part a little bit at the end. Just for the sake of thinking a little bit, when I hear that, that last part that says that the earth and its celestial kingdom will be a Urim and Thummim, and many within that kingdom will have additional Urim and Thummim, it makes me think that the place that God resides is a place where past, present, and future and all knowledge are always available. And maybe through a Urim and Thummim, by living on a Urim and Thummim, that is how we will have access to the same all-knowing, uh, God-like ability to be omnipotent. I'm not going to try and explain that because my brain hurts a little bit when I try and put it into words. And since I don't actually know, I probably should, shouldn't really theorize a whole lot. Um, but that's kind of the, the pathway that my brain starts to go on just to kind of get you thinking so you can ponder that and just think what you think that means. I would love it if anybody has like really awesome, specific prophets talking about that and explaining it. I couldn't find it, but I think it's fascinating. So um, but for now, I'm just going to say what my grandpa always says, Alma 3711, these mysteries are not yet fully made known unto me, therefore I shall forbear. <laughs> so back to our questions. Where is heaven? While we don't know the location, we do know that heaven and earth are intertwined inseparably because angels from that holy sphere have access to both. They are all aiding in that great goal of bringing to pass the immortality and eternal life of man so that we can fill the measure of our creation. It says that Adam fell that men might be and men are that they might have joy. And so angels are intertwined with what is going on here on the earth because the whole purpose of this whole plan is so that we might have joy is so that we can fill the measure of our creation which is to become like Heavenly Father, which is to have an eternal increase, meaning have never-ending posterity. And I just love thinking, it's just a visual that I have in my mind. I have in my mind the sphere where God resides. It's a great Urim and Thummim. And I, and I have in my mind picturing angels on that sphere. And I just picture this like little highway of angels between earth and this other sphere. And obviously that's not what it really looks like, but that's kind of what I, I imagine is that, that the two places 
are just so connected because their purposes are intertwined completely. All right, so since the whole goal is to bring to pass our immortality and eternal life and thereby perfect joy, let's talk about where that joy comes from. It comes from living the principles of the gospel. It comes from loving our Father in heaven and his Son. It comes from receiving that love from them. We are also told that we are meant to have joy and rejoicing in our posterity. Verse 2 in section 137 says, And that same sociality which exists among us here will exist among us there, only it will be coupled with eternal glory, which glory we do not now enjoy. So we will have our friends and our family eternally linked as we live up to the covenants that we make in the temple and the promise given to Abraham that his posterity would be as innumerable as the sands of the sea, that they would be as dust of the earth, as numerous as the stars of the heavens. The Abrahamic covenant applies to those who are the Lord's covenant people, those who have faithfully made covenants in the temple and choose to keep them. In the manual, True to the Faith, it says, To be counted as Abraham's seed, an individual must obey the laws and ordinances of the gospel. Then the person can receive all the blessings of the Abrahamic covenant, even if he or she is not a literal descendant of Abraham. So in talking about that Abrahamic covenant, that we are entitled, if we live up to our covenants, that we are promised, I guess maybe entitled isn't the best word, that we are promised that we will have joy and rejoicing in our posterity, and also that we will have innumerable posterity. So in talking about that, we need to talk about the new and everlasting covenant, eternal marriage, temple marriage. Joseph Smith said, except a man and his wife enter into an everlasting covenant and be married for eternity while in this probation by the power and authority of the holy priesthood, they will cease to increase when they die. That is, they will not have any children after the resurrection. But those who are married by the power and authority of the priesthood in this life and continue without committing sin against the Holy Ghost will continue to increase and have children in celestial glory. Now, I just want to clarify really quick that this is specific to those who are married and chose not to enter into the new and everlasting covenant. Those who did not have the opportunity to make the new and everlasting covenant, and that might be for a variety of reasons. Maybe um, they didn't have the gospel available to them. Maybe they didn't have the opportunity to be married in the first place. They will have the opportunity to do so in the life to come. In a message from the First Presidency in 1916, when Joseph F. Smith was prophet, this was said, So far as the stages of eternal progression and attainment have been made known through divine revelation, we are to understand that only resurrected and glorified beings can become parents of spirit offspring. Isn't that cool to be, think about? We have the potential ability to create our own spiritual offspring. Very interesting. Only such exalted souls have reached maturity in the appointed course of eternal life. And the spirits born to them in the eternal worlds will pass in due sequence through several stages or estates by which the glorified parents have attained exaltation. That is some, that's some big stuff. <laughs> we have been taught that the new and everlasting covenant, which is the covenant that you enter into when you are sealed in the temple, is essential for exaltation. We cannot reach exaltation without it because exaltation is by definition an internal increase. It is ultimately creating the ability to create spiritual offspring, which you can only do if you are in the new and everlasting covenant, if you have a partner, if you have a spouse. 
I was reading a little bit, um, I can't remember who it was, but it was, it was somewhere in the history of the church. One of the, the older prophets, uh, I guess was talking to some men and those men weren't married and they were saying, Oh, I'll just get exaltation without being married. And the prophet clarified, no, you won't. And I think that just really brings into perspective how important marriage is and no wonder no wonder Satan is attacking marriage so much. No wonder it is a core focus. Think how powerful that union is. Brigham Young said, Suppose it is possible that you have the privilege of securing your, to yourselves eternal life, to live and enjoy these blessings forever. You will say this is the greatest blessing that can be bestowed upon you. What blessing is equal to this? What blessing is equal to the continuation of life, to the continuation of our organization? The Lord has blessed us with the ability to enjoy an eternal life with the gods, and this is pronounced the greatest gift of God. The gift of eternal life without a posterity to become an angel is one of the greatest gifts that can be bestowed. Yet the Lord has bestowed upon us the privilege of becoming father of lives. What is a father of lives as mentioned in the scriptures? A man who has a posterity to an eternal continuance. That is the blessing Abraham received, and it perfectly satisfied his soul. He obtained the promise that he should be the father of lives. It's interesting to think about our priorities and, and focuses here on earth versus the whole grand picture. I was having thoughts about it as I was reading about polygamy this week. And just how we know that God's ways are higher than our ways. And that the morals of each culture, our culture, are ultimately not absolute truth. I know that someday when we see the full picture of what eternal life actually is, what an eternal increase is, that all of it will make so much sense. I want to end just by reading a few of the verses describing what the future of the earth is when it receives its celestial glory. So this is section 113 verses 9 through 11. This earth in its sanctified and immortal state will be made like unto a crystal and will be a Urim and Thummim to the inhabitants who dwell thereon, whereby all things pertaining to an inferior kingdom or all kingdoms of a lower order will be manifest to those who dwell on it. And this earth will be Christ's. So just a little recap. So a Urim and Thummim will allow those who dwell on this celestial kingdom, the, the, the earth as it, as it will become, will be able to see all things pertaining to an inferior kingdoms or all kingdoms of a lower order. Uh, verse 10, then the white stone mentioned in Revelations 2.17 will become a Urim and Thummim to each individual who receives one, whereby things pertaining to a higher order of kingdoms will be made known. Okay, so we've got the earth itself will be um, sanctified and in its immortal, immortal state, and it will be made like a Urim and Thummim where you can um, see everything that's going on in lower kingdoms. And then you get this white stone, Urim and Thummim, to each individual who receives one, and then you can see things pertaining to a higher order of kingdoms will be made known. And a white stone is given to each of those who come into the celestial kingdom, whereon is a new name written, which no man knoweth save he that receiveth it. The new name is the key word. So I don't want to elaborate too much on this because I have my own thoughts about it and I, and I just don't have a whole lot of actual information or sources to back it up. And so I'm just going to leave it at that for you to ponder in your own mind. But this is just really, really cool stuff. It feels a little weird, 
Um, but things that we don't understand usually do feel a little weird. So, um, God has incredible power that we can't understand. And so I think if we were to, to see how God does everything, I think that just describing it probably would feel a little weird because it just doesn't feel possible to us. It feels, it feels foreign. All right. I want to end with the part of heaven that touches us the most right now, our interaction with ministering angels. This next quote comes from Jeffrey R. Holland. And let me just say, as I read this, I was amazed at how similarly this podcast episode ended up being to his whole talk, even though I hadn't even read it yet. So if you if you go back and read this talk, I didn't copy it, but really it did end up touching on like a lot of the different experiences and scriptures that I brought up. He said, speaking about angels, usually such beings are not seen. Sometimes they are, but seen or unseen, they are always near. Sometimes their assignments are in very are very grand and have significance for the whole world. Sometimes the messages are more private. Occasionally, the angelic purpose is to warn, but most often it is to comfort, to provide some form of merciful attention, guidance in difficult times. I ask everyone within the sound of my voice to take heart, be filled with faith, and remember the Lord has said he would fight our battles, our children's battles, and the battles of our children's children. And what do we do to merit such defense? We are to search diligently, pray always, and be believing. Then all things shall work together for our good, if we walk uprightly and remember the covenant wherewith we have covenanted. The latter days are not a time to fear and tremble. They are a time to be believing and remember our covenants. My beloved brothers and sisters, I testify of angels, both the heavenly and the mortal kind. In doing so, I am testifying that God never leaves us alone, never leaves us unaided in the challenges that we face. Nor will he, so long as time shall last, or earth shall stand, or there shall be one man, or woman, or child, upon the face thereof to be saved. On occasions, global or personal, we may feel we are distanced from God, shut out from heaven, lost, alone in a dark and dreary place. Often enough, that distress can be of our own making. But even then, the Father of us all is watching and assisting. And there are always those angels who come and go all around us, seen and unseen, known and unknown, mortal and immortal. May we all believe more readily in and have gratitude for the Lord's promise as contained in one of President Monson's favorite scriptures. I will go before your face. I will be on your right hand and on your left. My spirit shall be in your heart and mine angels round about you to bear you up. Such good stuff from Elder Holland. Right as this episode ends, I want you guys to do me a favor. I want you all to look up the song Angels Among Us by Alabama and go listen to it. It would just be a perfect way to end this episode. I want to testify to you that sometimes, just like Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, we might ask for Heavenly Father to remove our cup, to take away the trial that we are struggling with. Sometimes he might, but most of the time, probably not. But as you say, nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. There is nothing that could be done that would restrain the heavenly angelic help that will be sent to you. And I say these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Thank you so much for listening this week. And I encourage you to go listen to that song that I told you about. Go listen to Angels Among Us by Alabama to end this episode. Please, please share. And I'll talk to you next week. 